Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. Today, we have two excellent guests here to speak with us about the status of the elites inside of Vladimir Putin's Russia today. Our first guest is Nikolai Petrov. Petrov is a non-resident guest scholar affiliated with the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Previously, he was a senior research fellow at Chatham House in London and a professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. Additionally, from 1990 to 1995, he was an advisor to the Russian parliament, government, and presidential administration. He's the author of many analyses about Russian politics and the country's post-Soviet evolution. His most recent writings include Russia 2025, Scenarios for the Russian Future, and the State of Russia, What Comes Next. Our second guest is independent Russian journalist Michael Naki. Michael formerly was a member of the team at Echo Moskvi, which ceased operations in March 2022 by the Russian authorities. Today, Naki's YouTube channel has over 1 million subscribers, where he frequently comments on Russian politics and the war in Ukraine. In May of last year, a court in Moscow issued an arrest warrant for Michael after accusing him of distributing false information about the Russian military. Michael and Nikolai, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for our invitation. Welcome, everyone. We're really, really excited to have you here today. So for the last year, the situation among the Russian elites have been somewhat of an enigma to outside observers. Do they support the war? Do they quietly disagree with Putin's chosen track for Russia? But if so, where are the divisions and radical disagreements with the course that Russia's politics has taken since February 2022? All these discussions were unraveling until last week, when a phone call between a high-profile Moscow music producer, Yosef Prigozhin, and the Russian oligarch and former senator, Farhad Ahmedov, has been made public. In the conversation, the two members of the Russian elite express radical uh, disagreement uh, with the course that Russia has taken since the start of the war and Vladimir Putin in particular, using what we call in Russia not always a literature language, so to speak. And, of course, all sorts of questions arise. To what extent this is reflective of the broader sentiment within the ruling circles in Russia? And in general, what is the state of the affairs among the Russian elite today? So that's the exact question we I'd like to start this conversation with. Michael, may I ask your opinion? What do you think? Um, so uh, in general, we have evidence about um, uh, elites of Vladimir Putin they, that they don't like what is going on. They don't like war, but not, you know, war like because they have a high moral standard or standards, but they don't like war because it's uh, bad for their wallet, bad for their uh, transportation around the world and other and other. We have a Financial Times articles about that, about Russian oligarchs, about the problems uh, with a close circle of Putin about that war and other and other. But the main idea I think that we probably could see in this uh, conversation of uh, Farid Ahmedov and uh, Iwasif Prigozhin is that they don't dislike war. They dislike uh, this uh, 
weakness of Russian army, weakness of Russia, of Putin. If that would be a short war, yeah, for three days or two weeks, it's okay for them. Though they they don't like, you know, cry about uh, Ukrainian people. They just say that Russia is too weak and they show that Ukrainians show that Russia is weak. Uh, how they said that Street 95 destroyed Russian army. Yes, yeah, Street 95, it's a commanding show of Vladimir Zelensky, yes. And they are just complaining that they have a problem with money, problem with their apartments, problem about sanction, and they don't get just for what? Because Russian elites, how I think, they don't have values like Vladimir Putin. They don't need Ukraine, Crimea, or something like that. They want to take money from Russia corruption money from Russia and to buy houses, apartments and other in Europe or in uh, USA. So there was a goal of their life and they liked it. And now they don't, they have money. They still have money, a lot of Russian corruption money, but they don't know what to do with them. To move where? To Crimea. They don't like Crimea. They want to Riviera. They want to London. They want to USA. And now they just with this money and know what, don't know what to do. And all their families won in, uh, was in Europe. All their apartments was in Europe. Vladimir Solovyov, that's not very high person in Russian elite, yeah? But he had four villas in Como Lake uh, in Italy. Four villas, yeah? And... Uh, Every every person in Russian government had different apartments in other countries, including Vladimir Putin, because he bought apartments and castles for his daughter in different countries. Yeah, and so that's why I think they complain because they don't know when it will end and what the ending of this war. Because even if Russia will destroy Ukraine and they don't believe in it for now, I think, or they don't believe in it fully because they, they just uh, saw what happened in last year. But even in that scenario, they wouldn't get what they had in past, their opportunities. So I think the main problem with this part of elite, this part uh, like Ahmedov and Prigozhin, yeah, we have a different problems. Uh, they have a different problems in different parts of elites because there is a big problems inside military elites of Russia because they don't like what is going on, but not because they want, uh, I don't know, new apartments, but because they don't want to be weak and other. And that's other discussion. But in this case, I think is the main point. They don't see their future in Putin's hymns. And that's why they uh, become drunk and speak to each other 30 minutes about everything and uh, modern uh, Putin uh, country, modern Putin society that he built. Thanks a lot, Michael. So they dislike the war, but for all the wrong reasons. I wonder, by the way, if the number of villas uh, on Coma Lake corresponds to the number of seasons, maybe one villa for different, for different seasons. Nikolai, to what extent do you agree with Michael? And also uh, something that Michael mentioned, that different elites, different groups, types of the elites within the Kremlin may have different reasons to maybe support or disagree with the war. To what extent we learn something about how the regime works, the types of the elites uh, that compose the regime from this conversation, in your opinion? I would start with a kind of disclaimer. In my view, there is no elite in Russia in a way we usually use this term, having in mind those who 
do have certain room for maneuver who are uh, self-governed and more semi-independent. And this is very important to understand that in 20 years with something of Putin's rule, Putin did manage to restore a kind of nomenclaturian system where each person, including those at the very top of the system, are doing very small partial job given to them by the leader. And nobody except for the leader is overseeing the general result. And this, I think, helps those managers, rulers, ruling class in in Russia to survive in spite of very understandable troubles they are faced by. But we can sure look at this uh, ruling class consisting of uh, different groups. And the one represented by those persons we've started with, Ahmedov and uh, Prigozhin, I think it's very special group of business elites, marginal business elites, perhaps. And if it's possible to compare all uh, ruling class in Russia, which I think is a hostage of Putin, and which can be described as a team of a submarine which is submerging. So they do not have any choice. They do not have any opportunity to live from this submarine, unlike, by the way, Farad Ahmedov and Yosef Prigozhin, who are staying somewhere on the beach, who are enjoying being close to the kitchen, who are getting certain benefits, certain money. Of course, they are not happy with what's going on, just like any representative of uh, ruling class, or any manager in Russia. But the question is whether they do have any choice and uh, whether uh, their thinking is somehow directly connected to how they do act. And this is another very important point coming out of this conversation, which in general doesn't surprise anybody because it's uh, pretty evident that how uh, it's possible uh, to be happy when facing understandable troubles. But the point is that just like well-known Russian sociologist Yuri Levada uh, described it, it's double think. When the person thinks in one way and privately this person, just like Yosef Prigozhin, can say some critical things, but publicly uh, and uh, in behavior, uh, this uh, person is doing something very, very different. And this is very interesting part of the conversation. It's not even conversation, but when Prigozhin did try to explain how could it happen, his point was that it was a kind of private conversation and it doesn't have anything in common, and I'm saying very right things in public, and uh, my behavior is very patriotic. And this is another interesting problem, regardless of the fact how exactly Russian ruling class did take uh, the war in general and what's going on, and the fact that Putin no more can be seen as a lucky leader, as the one who can win in any conflict, regardless of what they do think, uh, they do express very understandable support of the leader, public support of the leader. 
And to a certain extent, uh, there is no choice for them. They cannot escape, and we've seen this. They are threatened, and there were several uh, cases, uh, and perhaps something similar could happen to Prigozhin in future, who knows. Well, uh, which can be seen as a science, as uh, signals that in case of any kind of betrayal, you will be very seriously punished and not necessarily uh, in, in a kind of a soft way. You can be, you can be killed. And this is exactly uh, the case. So I am not saying that those who are making decisions in Russia at all levels are driven only by repressions or by a threat of repressions, the threat of being repressed, but in my view, there are no, absolutely no signs of any appearing split in elites. And there is no way for these elites who are hostages of Putin, who are hostages of uh, the whole situation. There is no way. It could be perhaps the case uh, during the first week of the war. It didn't happen. And Putin was effective enough to keep all of those guys, including so-called former liberals, including technocrats and everybody else. But now it's too late for them even to betray. So they should keep loyalty and they should express uh, this loyalty by all means. Thank you, Nikolai. Looks like uh, even be, being one of the richest people in Russia comes with a lot of strings attached. Michael, uh, to what extent do you agree with what Nikolai said? And what do you think it tells us about the future of Putin's regime? Because Nikolai, correct me if I'm wrong, right? But your conclusions are quite pessimistic. Uh, eventually, it's irrelevant uh, how much the Russian elites are unhappy with the current status quo, their disappointment, their frustration will have no impact on the dynamic of the system. So the fact that the elites are not quite excited about the way things are essentially does not necessarily mean that the power vertical is weakened, if I'm reading uh, what Nikolai said is right. Please collect, correct me if I'm wrong. I agree with that partly. So the problem is that when we're discussing the future, uh, the future of that, uh, we all have different scenarios and our hopes about it. Yeah, If we say that our understanding of problem elite and Putin is that that elite need to kill Vladimir Putin. Yeah, tomorrow for Hadahmedov uh, with Mikhail Friedman and with I don't know Boris Abramovich just take knives and go to Kremlin and and kill Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I think that it wouldn't happen. And in this way, I don't wait for you know. Uh, inside Kremlin revolution of three or four people of oligarchs. But I think that this problem of Vladimir Putin, that when these elites don't believe in future with Vladimir Putin, they start to think, think about what opportunity do they have, which escape move they could get. We, we already saw... Uh, moves of uh, Abramovich with his uh, football club and with negotiation, uh, taking part in negotiation between Ukraine and Russia. We don't know that exactly how it was, but we know that it was. We see uh, Mikhail Friedman who called to um, a diplomatic mission of US in uh, Ukraine and asked to remove sanction from him for his money. 
So we see that they trying to find some opportunities, yeah? And we already saw how people escape from this, yeah, Putin's web, uh, like Alektinkov already done it and without any, you know, uh, without any attempts to, to negotiate with West. He just said, I don't give a, uh, I don't uh, want anything. I, uh, again, they swore. He's a part of elite, not big part, not big guy in that elite. And actually, Russian oligarch, it's not the main people in, uh, I think, I think that not main people in Putin's circle. So for Putin, oligarch, it's like his wallets. And he just uh, say, you, you did that and you will do that. Yeah, he don't mm, see them like a part of his elite. Yeah. And in this way, I think that other uh, you know, this uh, Ozero Lake cooperative, I don't know how it's in English, yeah, it's more important for Putin. And a problem there in that elite, it's more complicated and more powerful if we're speaking about possibilities of future. But all this oligarch and people with money, if they would choose not to support, not to be with Putin, it, it make uh, Vladimir Putin weaker because they don't have a lot of power, each of them personally, but together they, they are web of Vladimir Putin's uh, finance. So we saw that apartment for, for his teacher, he bought from one oligarch for one of his ladies. Yeah, he used other oligarch and other and other. So it's a big structure. And if we will just take parts of this structure out of Vladimir Putin, it's uh, it makes his weaker, uh, him weaker. And the more he weaker he become, it's uh, for us. It's good for this all the situation. I think because when you become weaker, you do more mistakes, and you weaker for your higher elites too yeah not for oligarchs but for other circle because other circle of vladimir putin like shoigu like zolotov like uh, other all these guys they feel weakness so they still with putin because they Smell think the blood yeah 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 they think that he's the biggest guy in this zoo yeah and when they under um, will understand that it's not 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 so for for now yeah it will become more complicated for Vladimir Putin. It's already happening. So I think that every every bad decision of Vladimir Putin, every his lose on a battlefield, yeah, all these uh, guys uh, watch on his, his uh, yeah attempts and say, okay, he become more weaker. And in a critical in a critical moment when they will believe that with Putin they will have worse future for them that without Putin this will be the moment where all this structure fell but the problem is that we don't know what to do with that yeah because we can't just go inside their heads but I think that the reason why uh, we need to try to push to all these yeah, uh, directions and uh, do for them less choices yeah to make this only choice with Putin or without Putin only two choices because now they think that they will do something they will I don't know ask a court to remove sanction yeah uh, European court to remove sanction they will just negotiate with America uh, because of resources or something so the main point in individual sanction for for my opinion 
from my from my opinion it's to make only these two ways and i think it could it could uh, change something but for now i agree with nikolai that there is not so much pressure that they just uh, i don't know everybody in kremlin want to kill vladimir Putin. maybe they won't but they don't uh, uh, think about it right now they don't uh, see the opportunities or uh this uh, like um only escape option for them they they think that they have more options yeah and they fear of putin because in in the end of this all of this uh they will have just two options and one on the one hand it will be be killed by vladimir putin like nikolai said they yeah of course they think about that yeah but the second uh, on the other hand uh, to be killed um, if you will be with vladimir putin and when they will think that this more uh, uh more real scenario i think they will change their behavior so we need to explain to the elites to find a way to communicate to the elites that even sticking around putin is not actually good for them long term it's still the same uh, quite uh, sad outcome for them uh, before I turn this uh, to Max, who is going to pick up, uh, Michael, on what you said about sanctions, I wanted to ask Nikolai one more question. Uh, first of all, Nikolai, do you agree with Michael that it matters, at least to some extent, the disagreement, the frustration among the elites undermines Putin's somewhat? Second, and I kind of have to bring this up, yesterday in St. Petersburg there was this huge uh, explosion, a terrorist attack allegedly, in which Vladimir Tatarsky, Russian pro-war military blogger, has been killed, and it's at least a second murder of the kind uh, that we know of. Uh, the first one was the murder of um, Alexander Dugin, Russia's ideologist, Eurasianist, daughter's murder in the car explosion which, uh, of course, raises all sorts of questions about as to what's going on and to what extent this maybe multiplying terrorist attacks against people who are openly supporting the war, to what extent do you think it might somehow affect the calculus of the regime elites? First of all, I would like to look at the subject of our discussion from the point of view of political relativity theory and if to look in this way, we should be not that sure that Putin is now weaker than uh, he used to be before the war and that he lost a lot. Uh, yes, Russia did lose a lot. Political elites, if there are any, lost a lot. Oligarchs, but there are no oligarchs in present-day Russia. They are former oligarchs or businessmen. They are losers as well, but not Vladimir Putin personally. His control over everything in the country did increase essentially. The West helped him to contain uh, all these rich persons under his direct uh, control when, well, announcing sanctions. The situation uh, of Putin, I think, is not that bad. So I wonder if in his view, he is losing. He can continue this war for many years, perhaps, and uh, he is enjoying the life in many different ways. And the fact that, well, Russia is no more considered to be a kind of civilized country, it helps him to, well, uh, enjoy position of uh, the Tsar in this country, 
of the leader who is not questioned, who is not criticized within the country by anybody. I think uh, that if to look at the ruling class, we should differ between at least four different groups. Businessmen, not oligarchs, they are in a very weak position now. There are so-called siloviki. Those part of ruling class did win in general, but I would say that they did win in a kind of institutional way, not personally. So in personal sense, they are very much controlled uh, by, by other uh, competing groups of Siloviki and uh, by Putin. Uh, we do have bureaucrats, and they are bureaucrats. I would say Siloviki are bureaucrats dealing with this particular sphere of the society, of uh, the country. Then there are bureaucrats, technocrats, represented by the government, first of all, and there are bureaucrats, uh, political managers. And uh, I think uh, that none of these big groups is capable to act on behalf of its corporate group interests. And this is another very important thing, that those guys are atomized. They cannot speak to each other sincerely and uh, uh, the conversation which did start our today's discussion is good uh, illustration of this point. And this makes the possibility of any coup, the possibility of any joint effort almost excluded. Of course, there can be conflicts, but I'm waiting for this conflict in a while when the pie uh, they are sharing will decrease, and it's decreasing now. Russia is suffering in result of sanctions, and it means that there is less and less money to feed all these big groups in Russian ruling class. So sooner or later, uh, it will be needed for the Kremlin to cut off, and it's already going on, to cut off financial flows. And it uh, is creating understandable tension in order to survive. So it will be a struggle for survival between different uh, groups uh, within the ruling class and uh, within these different groups, which uh, somehow will lead to a kind of instability, destabilization. We do not see uh, this destabilization now, but we can wait for it uh, in, in future. Regarding your second question on uh, this, well, assassination, I would say that in my view, it's surprising that the war, this bloody, horrible war, which is going in uh, Ukraine, did not earlier result in any serious actions like those you've mentioned in the past. It's inevitable. Not only it can be done, it should be done by Ukrainian side, but uh, it uh, will take place uh, due to the huge quantity of arms of those persons who are coming from this war and who uh, are behaving in a way which became habitual for them during the war. We do have now increase in uh, the number of murders for the first time in many years in Russia and will increase all those negative consequences both in Ukraine and in Russia will become more and more uh, essential. And uh, I would say that 
the only surprising thing of the assassination yesterday of this terrorist attack is that it didn't happen earlier and the country should be prepared for this and uh, the country and uh, not only a ruling class but the population should forget about the way uh, they do treat the war in Ukraine as something going on far away from uh, Russia. The war is coming to homes of Russians, not only in a way of soldiers which are killed at the war, but uh, in, in many different ways uh, uh, also. So it looks like it's the destabilization is coming. I was going to say that, yes, Max should be asking more about how we can destabilize this even further. I'm curious, Michael, for, for your take on the recent assassination. The Russian authorities have, have now blamed Ukrainian intelligence for being responsible, but I'm curious for, for your reaction to what happened and, and, and what you're hearing. Mm, I think that we need to talk about this assassination, not in context of uh, that it's uh, part of war, yeah, and uh, that when you attack other country, you need to be ready that your country will be under attack. Yeah, it's probably things, and it's always happened, and I agree with Nikolai that it's not very late, but I think it's later than a lot of people thought. But it's not first attack, actually, so already so and drones near Moscow, we saw Daria Dugina. Uh, but the most interesting history in uh, this context is assassination on Igri Mangushev. So it was this Vayan uh, Corps, it's new cast of Russian... Hmm, Imitation media, yeah, we're in core, uh, so it's like journalists in war, but they're not journalists, and sometimes they're not in war. But it's a new uh, new amount of people who have uh, media platforms, big Telegram channels, uh, YouTube channels, and they have a voice, a loud voice, but sometimes somebody killed them. And when I uh, say somebody, uh, I'm not mean that, uh, that it's Ukrainian, but we couldn't prove that. No, actually, in Russian history of 10 past years was the one episode when after 2015, when was the Minsk agreements, after that in Donbass, yeah, in that region that was in occupation of Russia, in fact, uh, start to happening strange, uh, stranger things. Like a lot of uh, people who were the leaders of uh, people in Donbass, yeah, they start to die. Die in Lyft, die in restaurant, in different places like Givi, Motorola, in their war names. Yeah, they all become dead and somebody killed them. And in this uh, part of uh, Russian internet, or not even internet, so in this part of uh, war analytics, pro Russian war analytics uh, side of the story, they say that people of Evgeny Prigozhin, yeah, Wagner Group, killed all these leaders of Donbass army. No, that, that was mixed with people who was from Russia, but not in regular army with people from regular army. Yeah, And there was a leaders who, after Minsk agreements, start try to live, you know, normal life, but like leaders of the cities inside Donbass and others. So there was a lot of death there. And when the new part of war uh, began, so 
we see the same actually so the people who was connected with Evgeny Prigozhin start to be killed to, to in assassination like Daria Dugina worked with Prigozhin Igor Mangashev worked with Prigozhin and story about Igor Mangashev is very strange because he was not on the front line he was in Donbass but in like in Donetsk uh, not in in a line of battles and somebody killed him to his upside part of his head so Mangushev was on his knees and people inside this group, they said that it possible could be a Wagner group because Mangushev died in a place where was a Wagner block post. So why I'm telling you about that? So it's not obvious that uh, Ukraine killed this Vladlen Tatarsky because he worked with Prigozhin too. But it's actually, there is no difference between Ukrainians killed him or Russians or Prigozhin or Fizby or uh, somebody else. Because in general, from the perspective of elites, including these media personalities, yeah, like this, what in course, and simply, simply people who take in a public pre-war position, this means that uh, their insecure situation for them, yeah, risk for them are growing. And not only and not so much from Ukraine, but also from Prigozhin or just internal disputes. So like different parts of Russia, because actually Vladimir Putin has lost in this place. I disagree actually with Nikolai about what Vladimir Putin lost or what Vladimir Putin get. But I think that we both of us agree that he uh, lost um, monopoly on legitimate violence, yeah, and he gave it to different structures. Uh, he gave it to not not you know business companies like group, Wagner Group, but but not connected directly to Russian army, yeah, and there is different a lot of different people with arms inside Russia, and Russian government allow them. To do what they want yeah and i think it's a big problem for these people with a pro-war position and two things that lost vladimir putin it's uh monopoly on legitimate violence and sense of security because if you will check you will see that margarita simonyan vladimir solovyov and other public people we don't know what uh unpublic people say yeah because they are Unpublic, it's obvious, but I think the same. And all these people, after this explosion in St. Petersburg, they said, What is going on? When they will kill us? It's not first and not last attempt to kill us. And all of them, fair of it, because Vladimir Putin, he just say that all you will be secure yeah because you have money, you have my my possibilities, and other and other. And in fact, in the center of St. Petersburg, that in hundreds of kilometers from front, these people are dead. And people see not only this, but the system, anti-rocket systems on the streets of Moscow, on the streets, on the other cities. Yeah, because Ukrainian drones, uh, Ukrainians say that there is not their drones, but we know they they are uh closer and closer to moscow to different other cities so i think that this feeling of insecure uh, make for a lot of different groups of people including elites um what this to hand that we were talking previously mm, 
this hand of Putin less uh, less power, uh, weaker, weaker, yeah, because he couldn't provide this secure, and uh, they start to think that they could be just killed, and not only by Ukrainians, but even Prigozhin or uh, ex-prisoner from Wagner Group with a rifle that he bought in Belgorodskaya Oblast for 15,000 of rubles. There are a lot of such stories right now, mm -hmm. including grenades and other arms. So I think that what is going on, and uh, I think it's not the last actually assassination or attempt of assassination in uh, this uh, Russian modern history in nowadays. So, so it seems like to me that the elites are are getting squeezed. It, it seems like from a number of sides and have a lot to worry about. That they're being sanctioned by the West. They can't access their villas. They've had to sort of stay aligned with uh, the Putin regime, even if they have misgivings about the war, because that that's where they're they're tied to. And now, as you mentioned, the the loss of monopoly of violence that now you're seeing the spread of violence where even being aligned with the state may not be enough to save them. I guess the question is what power then do the elites have? And is Vladimir Putin worried about them? March of last year, Putin gave a sort of famous statement, which I, I have in front of me where he said, quote, I do not judge those with villas in Miami or the French Riviera who can get by without oysters or foie gras or so-called gender freedoms. The problem is they mentally exist there as in the West and not here with our people in Russia. And he went on to sort of describe them as a fifth column. And it seemed to me that that was sort of a sense of putting all the oligarchs and the elites on notice. And, you know, while uh, represent a degree of concern that they could sort of begin to scheme and conspire against his his regime i think and and maybe to you nikolai both of you have sort of described how the oligarchs and the elites are are stuck and and really nervous about their position but is putin worried that they may flip against him is this something that he needs to be concerned about or needs to be worried about i would say that there is feeling of insecurity and uncertainty and it's uh, much bigger now than it used to be. But I cannot say that a while ago in the past, uh, anybody out of oligarchs or out of elites could feel uh, being absolutely secure. And this is not only about political repressions, which did start as very widespread thing in 2014-2015, but I do mean a lot of strange death of former representatives of uh, either Siloviki or rich men uh, abroad who uh, felt in London that uh, they are secure enough. And their death not only uh, could be seen as a kind of a punishment for traitors and uh, something else, but uh, also as a signal to everybody else. So ne uh, never and uh, nowhere you should fail being safe. And we can easily see this in behavior of sanctioned uh, rich persons. So they are living abroad for many years. They could feel much less dependent uh, from the system, from uh, the regime, from Putin uh, than anybody in Russia. But nevertheless, they do avoid 
saying any concrete things which uh, can be taken by Putin as a kind of uh, betrayal or uh, his personal humiliation or anything else. So they do feel being insecure. And of course, and here I do agree with Michael that there is uh, a kind of violence which is increasing, it's widespread, but it always was the case in Russia. And uh, we should not take seriously the idea that violence sometime in the past was very strongly controlled by Putin personally or by Zelensky, if we speak about Ukraine. In uh, both cases, in case of Russia and in case of Ukraine, at a time of war, uh, there is understandable decentralization of violence and of decision-making with regard to violence. So not only uh, you should be afraid of Putin and what exactly he can do against you, but you should be afraid of many different other guys like Evgeny Prigozhin, his subordinates, uh, by any person who is coming uh, out, uh, out of the war. And it creates very... Uh, understandable situation where everybody is afraid, I mean, in ruling class, is afraid to speak to his or her neighbor openly, sincerely, because he or she feels being threatened and uh, is afraid of making wrong moves. That's why I would say that when speaking about uh, future scenarios and about the opportunity for the group uh, within ruling class to feel being less and less secure and thus being pushed in direction of conspiring against Putin, against the regime, we should have in mind that uh, any person is uh, trying to compare costs and benefits. And in my view, costs of conspiring against the system are extremely high now, but they will not decrease, but rather increase in future. And if and when Putin becomes weaker, he will be even more dangerous for anybody who will think about the possibility to conspire against him. On that very question of costs and benefits uh, in the calculus of the Russian elites, probably the last question to both of you. So how can we incentivize the Russian elites to pick the right side uh, of history. In particular, since the start of the war, only the United States alone has designated roughly 2,600 Belarusian and Ukrainian individuals for the involvement and support for the war. That's not the first time the individual sanctions against the Russian elites have been in place, right? They've been consistently introduced uh, since 2012. So the question, Michael, maybe let's start with you. To what extent do you think this approach works? Shall we continue sanctioning the Russian elites, or maybe there's something that we should improve in this mechanism? Essentially, do you have any advice uh, as to what, what to do? So, I think we all agree that the main question when we speak about elites, it's uh, pros and cons for them, yeah? So, they try to understand what for them is a better scenario. The problem is that it's not pros and cons in our imagination. So we couldn't understand how they think. We couldn't be inside their heads. The two approaches that I see, 
are completely different. So 180 degrees different. First approach, and I disagree with it. It's a pro that we need something to offer elites of Vladimir Putin. Offer yeah. something to oligarchs, offer something to meta, I don't know, propagandists and others. So the logic is that, so they decide we, uh, on the which side they want to be. So we need to give them something that's better than with Vladimir Putin. I'm completely sure that it doesn't work in the reasons that Nikolai, Nikolai describes. So he, he, I absolutely agree that the main idea of them, it's not the benefit, it's uh, fair, fair of Vladimir Putin, of her possibilities, because actually in different situations, when Vladimir Putin killed people in other countries, there was so small reaction from that country. So so just, just I don't know, smaller that direction for invasion in Georgia. So, uh, and this is a problem because they know that uh, they're not, secured and Putin know that there is no uh, for him problems. Uh, nowadays, situation is better actually, because less Russian agents inside Europe, less Putin's opportunities to kill people in different countries. Yeah. Um, and the reason, uh, and mm, because people thinking about fear, not about their benefits, I think that the different approaches needed here. You know, when boat is sinking, yeah, rats just run out of the boat. And we don't need cheese to say rats, hey, come on, on our boat, yeah? We don't, we, we need to give them the, the stick for them just to ride Think to that the boat. ship. Yes. <laughs> and this, in this, in this, our speculation about elites and other, we couldn't uh, destroy the ship, yeah? It's uh, what uh, Ukrainian army do right now in a metaphor and not even in metaphor, uh, metaphoric way. But we need to make clear for them that it's not, you know, we don't try to buy them, yeah? We try to save them. So to give them opportunity for escaping, but before that, they need to understand that's not about trading, yeah? It's about just staying alive and not imprisoned. So I think that before trying to give them escape option, wild of them, we need to make a lot of pushing to them. And not, you know, the, the main problem with individual sanction right now look like they, uh, at the beginning of invasion of Russia in last year, they they just accept a lot of sanction, individual sanction. And year before, actually, they said that there is no option that we will uh, put in sanction list Lavrov and other and other. When the invasion began, we saw that all these, you know, court problems, uh, low, uh, low problem, they just disappeared. Yeah, and they said, okay, now we can. And the problem is they say started in good way, so there was more and more individual sanction, more of uh, more people every week, every month, uh, every uh, uh, more and more sanction. But in one moment they stopped, and for now we have just I don't know them ten new people in Canadian list of sanction for um, three months and other, and this is a problem. Russian elites don't believe that sanction for them. It's a long-term problems, and uh, that's that's the problem right now. So we need to push harder, and in situation 
when they understood this that boat is sinking yeah they will understood that it's their life jacket and will just you know trade vladimir putin how i see that so that's i think that that approach that i believe thank you michael nikolai last word to you do you agree with what michael said or maybe have better solutions for us I am a little bit uh, uncertain or even suspicious with regard to personal sanctions. And uh, I'll try to explain why is it so. Mike did mention Oleg Tinkov earlier. The guy is under sanctions in Great Britain and uh, he openly opposes Putin. He is not connected with the war. He uh, refused from his Russian citizenship. But nevertheless, he is under sanctions. And we do have only two cases when sanctions were taken out. One is mother of Evgeny Prigozhin, who did, or lawyers uh, did prove at the court that she doesn't have anything in common with his business. And another guy is Avsianikov, the former governor of Sevastopol. But that's all. And this, I think, now can be seen as a huge mistake Uh, made uh, by the West. In my view, sanctions, when being announced more than a year ago, had in mind very different vision of how the situation should develop. And if the war would be short and victorious, uh, then it would work much better. And uh, then it would be understandable why it's not a kind of individual approach. If you do have $1 billion, for example, uh, and you are Russian, then you can be sanctioned and nobody uh, will analyze how exactly you got this money and so on. It's considered to be connected to this uh, bloody criminal regime. Moreover, I would say that personal sanctions is the easiest way for populist politicians at the West to demonstrate their decisiveness, uh, their fight against Putin. In case of sectoral sanctions, there are understandable losses because sectoral sanctions do work uh, in both ways. But in case uh, you do arrest property of this or that bloody oligarch in London, you can get applause because it's it's so easy from one side, but from other side, You do avoid any accusations of being too closely connected to bloody, dirty Russian money. And I would say that in my view, it's absolutely needed to revise approach to personal sanctions, not only in order to make uh, them more uh, individual based and not uh, necessarily using presumption of uh, being guilty, but also not to ruin judicial system of the West. Because what we see now is a kind of prevalence of political reasons over uh, rule of law. And it's it's very dangerous case. And we do see now how uneasy it is to confiscate property which has been arrested due to sanctions. Fortunately, there is understandable resistance from a judicial community, but it can lead to much bigger losses at the West and damage to the rule of law 
than any probable positive effect in case of Russia. And finally, uh, we should define exactly goals. If the goal is to punish each and everybody who is somehow connected with the regime, then we can take uh, FBK approach with 6,000 guys, including all mayors, all governors, everybody else, and announce sanctions against them. If our goal is somehow to weaken Putin, then perhaps approach should be absolutely different. And instead of pushing former Russian oligarchs and rich persons uh, in direction of Russia, uh, we should think about the possibility to show them uh, a way out and to do this in a kind of uh, individual way. Yeah. Well, Nikolai, Michael, thank you. We're out of time. I think it's been a, a fascinating conversation. The one thing I might add just at the end is that part of the, I think, objective of some of the individual sanctions was both to sort of uproot Russian oligarch and elite influence in Western societies, in part because many of these individuals were directly tied to the regime. And I think their unwillingness to push back on the regime has also been been demonstrated by the fact that they've they've been in line. So sanctions, I think, therefore had a dual purpose of trying to create change in Russia, which we haven't seen yet, I think, as both of you have noted, and the elites have sort of bolstered the regime, but also trying to sort of insulate the West and our societies from from some malign influence that we had been suddenly uh, awoken to since 2014. But but thank you both for, for joining us. Thank you for appearing on Russian Roulette. For all those listening, uh, rate and subscribe. Give us five stars. And also check out our sister podcast, The Europhile, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts as well. Thank you both. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at csis.org.